This is week number four in the Misunderstood series, and we're looking at often abused and misused verses from the Bible, and hopefully we're setting the record straight a little bit around here. Today's sermon is called Clickbait Christianity. Now, if you're under a certain age, you already know what that means. If you know what that means already, what a clickbait, raise your hand. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. You guys are more hip than I thought. But I want everybody, we're multi-generational, I want everybody with me on this because it's, it's going to run through the message, so I want us to all be in on it. Uh, clickbait is an internet term, internet term used to describe when a website uses deceptive headlines or thumbnail pictures to artificially drive more traffic to their website so that they can increase their advertisement revenue. Uh, we all know that Super Bowl commercials bring in a lot more ad money than does, let's say, C-SPAN, right? Why? Well, because the TV ratings for the Super Bowl are higher. We know that. Uh, there are more eyeballs watching. Thus, the advertisers are willing to pay more money for it. Well, on the internet, they don't do the Nielsen ratings. They pay with clicks. Anytime you click on your mouse or tap with your thumb on your smartphone, it is registered. If you're on Facebook, if a news article passes by your feed as your thumb is scrolling and you click on that, uh, you just gave a click to the company, to whatever news organization or blog, whatever that you clicked on. And so they now, because you said that you liked it, can demand more ad money from the advertisers because they have more eyeballs. So what is clickbait then? It's when you are baited into clicking something that's not exactly how it was described in the headline that made you click on it in the first place. So here's an example. If I wanted to drive more traffic to our Kirby Woods media or to our podcast, for example, um, I've had Aaron a few times. Where are you at, Aaron? Raise your hand. Uh, Aaron and I have had a couple podcasts uh, to, that we've done together, um, and it's been fun. It's been helpful, been thoughtful discussions, I felt. Uh, everybody's been polite no real disagreements. If they were, they were friendly. But what if we said, you know, what if we wanted to get some more traffic? What if we wanted to get some more clicks? This is really isn't doing it. Let's get some more clicks. And so, uh, because we know controversy drives the clicks, right? We know anything about social media, it's that outrage and controversy gets more clicks. So let's say a clickbait version of this would be uh, we find the moment in the video when Aaron happens to just be pointing his finger, right? It just happened for a second, and we freeze frame that. Screenshot, that's now the picture, Aaron pointing at me with a finger. And then we change the title. You know, before it was something boring like, you know, Jared and Aaron discuss preaching. Right? Boring. Let's change it to say something like, Mid-America student mops the floor with Kirby Woods pastor. And you, and you all caps mops the floor, or intern obliterates senior pastor, or pastor instantly regrets saying this, dot, dot, dot. Now that's some good clickbait. And guess what? We would get triple the amount of clicks if that was our headline, wouldn't we? But if you clicked on it and listened to the podcast, you kind of realize a few minutes in, these, these guys aren't fighting with one another. They're just talking. That, what was that? Why did I click on this? You just got clickbaited right there. That's what clickbait is. It's just something to get you to make the initial click. And whether you watch the video or not, it's irrelevant because you got the advertisement dollar. You gave them the dollar. So that's why the internet is set up the way that it is, to get the first click. The prophet Jeremiah, 
How's that for a segue? The prophet Jeremiah lived in a time of clickbait prophets. They said what they needed to say to get the listener's ear to drive engagement. But Jeremiah had the true message from God. So our text for the misunderstood verse today is Jeremiah 29, 11, which reads as follows. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, you've certainly seen this plastered on wall art, throw pillows, graduation announcements. Maybe you've used it, don't worry. Most people can't really tell you much about the prophet Jeremiah or his ministry, but they do know Jeremiah 29, 11. The common misconception about this verse is that often it's used as a blanket statement to all people that God has a wonderful plan for your life that always includes success and peace and a bright future. That God's intent towards you is to bring certain material, emotional, financial, spiritual prosperity to your life. But rarely do we slow down and ask, what is the context of Jeremiah 29? Questions like, to whom did God say that? Or was this a promise for all people of all times? Or what was happening to the people in Jeremiah's day to cause this to be said? So we're going to look at all of that today. And here's the nutshell of where we're going. Jeremiah provided a desperately needed correction to the mindset of Judah's exiles in Babylon. They were believing clickbait lies of local prosperity prophets that the captivity was ending soon. But Jeremiah knew from God that it was not. So he had to both correct and encourage these exiles at the same time. And that's where Jeremiah 29, 11 comes from. So again, before we look right at this text, would you pray with me for God's help today? Lord, would you help us right now to understand your word correctly? Is that verse we've been memorizing, saying every week that, Lord, we right now would rightly handle the word of your truth, that you would help us, Lord, to get it right and also to learn from it and to change something in our hearts and minds and life based upon what your word said. Lord, you have full authority to change our lives, and we pray you would use this passage today to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, Jeremiah 28, Jeremiah 28. As we unpack this verse, it's going to take a little more work up front because, again, most people don't really know what Jeremiah is about. It's not your fault. It's just that's how most people are, all right? So here's the situation. Israel's northern kingdom has long been taken captive. They're gone, okay? The Babylonian Empire, sometimes called the Chaldeans, has come to power. They've already defeated Judah They've carried off everything of value. They stripped all the gold and bronze out of the temple. They took all the nice silverware. They took the king and the court officials, the prophets, priests, craftsmen, all the skilled tradesmen, all the people they deemed valuable to a society. They already carted off and brought to Babylon. All that was left now in Judah were the poor or those items that they did not want. It was sort of like a yard sale at 4.30 p.m., already been picked over, not much left. So for reference, if you remember, Daniel and his friends were like the first people taken. So that tells you they were kind of high class, high society, people with a skill or a trade. So they got taken quickly. They would have already been in Babylon at this time. So back in Jeremiah 24, 
this narrative begins to form in in Jeremiah's writing. Uh, He's speaking to both crowds. He's writing letters. He's talking to both those who've been taken and those who've been left behind. And there's a vision in Jeremiah 24 where he calls the exiles, the ones who got taken, the good figs, right? That's what he calls them, good figs. Maybe you like apples or pears, that's fine. But he says pigs, uh, figs, wow, that changed quickly. God says, not to the Jews, no. So God says the exiles are good figs. And I will, here he says in 24:4, set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. We will build them up and not tear down. I will plant them and not pluck them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people. I will be their God. They shall return to me with their whole heart. So that's back in 24 that he's saying these things. And the reason I'm telling you that is that is almost an exact parallel to what's coming in Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, nobody I've ever heard quotes Jeremiah 24. It's always Jeremiah 29. But I'm telling you right now, it's the same people. It's the same context. And I think because Jeremiah 24 uses the words them, talks about them, and Jeremiah 29 uses the pronouns you and talks about you, we read it differently. And this brings up a a thing when we read the Bible, that often we drop ourselves into parts of the story where it's not necessarily about us, but we put us in that pronoun you. We put ourselves into the story as opposed to thinking about the exiles uh, from Judah to Babylon when we read about them. The reason the pronouns change from 24 to 29, the only reason those pronouns change is because 24 is a prophecy from God to Jeremiah about them. But in Jeremiah 29, it's a written letter from the hand of Jeremiah to be read about them. So when it's read in their presence, they're saying you, because it's meant to be read to them aloud. So one more question. Why did a letter need to be written to the exiles? Here's the answer. This is going to get us into our story today. Because there was a popular lie spreading amongst them. And that's going to be point number one today. We see the lie in circulation. Jeremiah 29, 11 was made necessary because a lie was spreading. There was a prophet spreading a message to the exiles which was much more cheery than actual reality. A clickbait prophecy, if you will. Ten easy steps to grow your bank account. Click here. Boom. That's what he was giving them. Something quick and easy and cheap. One chapter previous to the main verse, we see the false prophecy laid out. So look with me now to Jeremiah 28, 1 through 4. It says, In the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, that's the guy's name, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priest and all the people, saying, here's his message, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. That's the message. So if you think about this message, it sounds really good, especially imagine if you just got carted off to Babylon, you just got taken captive, hostage, 
And then a prophet, Hananiah, comes saying, guys, God told me this whole thing is over in two years. In two years, you'll be back in Jerusalem in your own bed, in your own shower. This is just a temporary thing in Babylon. In fact, God told me that he has broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. These Babylonians are going to be defeated in two years, then we're home. So that was the message. Now, everybody's obviously excited. You would be too. A prophet used the phrase, thus says the Lord. I mean, come on, everything you read on the internet is true, right? What does Jeremiah say about this? Well, he says in verses 5 through 9, you can read it later, something to the effect of, hey, I hope you're right. I hope you've really heard from the Lord. However, we got to note that this message you're saying is not what all the other prophets who've ever been talking about this have said. This is new stuff. No other prophet has been talking about that. Then there's even a footnote in my Bible that took you to Micah, where Micah said this was not going to be a short stay. So Jeremiah's like, hey, you're saying things that other established prophets have not been saying, but I guess time will tell. And that's where it kind of stops for a moment. And then Hananiah doubles down. What does he do? He doubles down. He grabs, he grabs a large yoke that was like an object lesson. Verse 12 says this, sometime after the prophet Hananiah broke the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So now Jeremiah is getting a word from the Lord. It says, go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given to him even the beast of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, here's the key, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth, this year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And in that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. So what happened here? God comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, look, Hananiah is a false prophet. The captivity is not two years long. I have Babylon in dominance right now against, as a judgment against you. He's giving these people false hopes. And two months later, Hananiah dies. Now, however... His message was already heard. It was already received, and it was spreading amongst the exiles in Babylon. The two years in done prophecy was out there. It was being believed. But back in Jeremiah 25, 11, we're already told Jeremiah hears this stay is going to be 70 years. 70, not two, 70. Now, Jeremiah knows, just like you and I know, those are two very different sermons to give to people. If you're a preacher, what message would you rather preach to people that just want to come home? Two and we're through? Even rhymes, doesn't it? That's got a nice preacher alliterated ring to it. 70 only rhymes with 11, and that's not even a real word. So what do you do with that? And thus we arrive at a classic conundrum for both preacher and listener. Do you want the truth or not? Do you want your preacher to tell you to and we're through when it's really 70 because it gives you a false sense of hope in that moment? Just like Hananiah, 
There are preachers who will take that deal today. You need to know that. Will take that deal and preach the false message that feels good because it gets clicks and likes and ad dollars and book deals and slots at the conference. And you, Christian, you, not just me, you and me, have to draw a line in the sand and say, we just want the truth. I once heard someone say, if I want to feel good, I'll go to the carnival and ride the merry-go-round. I'm not going to make my preacher bear the weight of making me feel good by telling me what I want to hear. Just like my doctor, I want to just hear the truth. No matter how it makes me feel, I want the truth. And I hope, I hope that is how you feel about hearing the word of God. Well, that's the lie in circulation to the exiles, two and we're through, right? That's the lie. Tippy can do and Tyler too, two and we're through. There it is. Don't settle in. God's going to break us out soon. But that was a false prophecy and it needed correction. And that's unfortunately for Jeremiah where he has to come in and do the work. We've seen a lie in circulation. Next, we see number two, a letter of correction, a letter of correction. If you look at Jeremiah 29.1, you will see the contents of the letter spoken. So he tells you all the people in verses 1 through 3 who he's talking about and who the letter's going to. So we'll pick up in the interest of time in verse 4 where the letter begins. All right, Jeremiah 29.4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the letter. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, what is the message that God gives to the exiles in Babylon? Basically, it's this. Keep living your life. Invest in the city. Pray for the city. Now, bear in mind, this is a good pause moment. We're talking about Babylon. Babylon, right? Literally Babylon. I know sometimes in the Bible that's like a, that's a figure of speech or a metaphor, and sometimes in this culture we do that. No, this is a letter to actual historical Babylon. And the message that God has for his people is not to hunker down and not to burn it down, but the exact opposite. Look at these imperative commands. Build houses, plant gardens, take wives, have children, multiply. Do not decrease. Now, why would this be important? If these exiles believed the false prophecy that they were out in two years, well, how might that affect the way they live their life? They very well might have hunkered down and suspended living their lives. They might have resisted the efforts of making a home in a foreign land, resisting bringing children into such an uncertain situation. But then those two years would become three and four and five and six, and they would be waiting on something that 
was hurting them because their lives would never go on. But God's plan all along, as we learn, is to get them out of there, return them to their land. And listen, God wanted there to be something to return to the land. When he needed to get them out of there, he didn't want to find 12 angry people who had stopped living their lives. He wanted to find a thriving people that he could bring back to Jerusalem. The same way that Israel came out of Egypt in great numbers and succeeded even while slaves, he wanted Israel to come out of Babylon in great number and succeed even though captives. So the message is clear. I got some, I got, this is a, a good meaning for us today. Just because you're in exile in a foreign land, don't give up and plunge into despair and devolve into slums and having no children. No, continue what God has called you to do. Be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over a house and a garden and a family. And that's the message even for us today, Christians. We are to live, yes, as exiles in our culture where we are. We are not to be completely at home. Citizenship, not here, up there. We've got that. But we are to live. We are to serve and build and do things that God has called us to do here. Just because Jesus has said he is going to return one day, and he will, it does not give us the license to quit our jobs and put on our ascension robes and stand on the rooftop every day singing Midnight Cry looking at the sky. We need to keep building and discipling and giving and going and praying and sending right here and right now. Just because we can feel ourselves losing our influence in the culture and becoming more marginalized doesn't mean that we disengage or adjust our lives to a bunker mentality. We need to do the opposite. We need to continue building even as exiles. Now, what God says in verse 7 is shocking to the Old Testament ear because typically we think of the idea of praying for your enemies and those who persecute you as something Jesus uniquely said. But look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this, this is wild stuff now. Seek the welfare of where? Babylon. Babylon? Pray to the Lord for the welfare of Babylon? Are you serious? All right, here it is, church. Stay with me now. It is tempting. And I've probably fallen for it, okay? It is tempting in the current culture in which we live to want to take on an attitude against the city in which you live. It is tempting to adopt a position of general aggression and distaste and disgust for the place in which we live because of the sin that's around us. It is tempting like Jonah to want to go sit on the edge of town and wait for the judgment to come and sit back and say, burn, baby, burn. You get what you got because you turned your back on the Lord. It is tempting to want to do that. Memphis is a place with problems. We know this. Too much crime, too much poverty, racial tension, infant mortality. I could go on and on. We've got problems. But listen, it's not Babylon. It's not Babylon. God told the exiles who were actively taken to seek 
the welfare and pray for Babylon. What excuse do we then have for hating on Memphis? We can't have an attitude of hatred toward our own Jerusalem to be content to let it burn. No, we need to seek the welfare of this place. And that word welfare, maybe the only Hebrew word some people know, shalom, to seek the shalom of the city. Holistic peace. God says in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So the city goes, so you go. It's almost like God saying, hey, you live here too, don't you? We should want our city to be successful and to grow and to fix all the problems that plague us. And certainly we call out sin and we abstain from sin ourselves. But we cannot adopt a mindset of desiring the downfall of our city because we're exiles any more than Israel could in Babylon. That's like rooting for Sodom to get a fireball dropped on it from heaven while you're sitting in the town square. You can love your city without celebrating the sins and flaws of your city. You can desire its welfare and pray for it, and you should, because you're not likely to reach this place with the gospel if you hate it. That's important. In verse 8 and 9, God reiterates that the false prophets have been lying. He encourages the people, do not listen to them. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And this letter that we just read was a correction. It was do not hunker down, do not hate the city, do not burn it down, invest, build, pray until I lead you out. So let's get to the when, when that would be. What would those circumstances be? That's the final point today and we've been building toward our verse in question. So the third point today, we're going to see the limits of the captivity, the limits of the captivity. And we're going to read starting in verse 10. It says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So the big negative piece of information in this news that as they would have been reading this aloud would have been the time period that they learned. It would have been 70 instead of two. And trust me, if you heard that news for the first time, you'd be pretty crushed. Given the average lifespan, pretty much everyone reading that letter learned they were going to die in Babylon. And to make matters worse, they'd been hearing from the false prophets too, constantly. So you're dealing with unmet expectations. But beyond this, this correction, beyond it's 70 not two, which is pretty serious. But beyond that, you have to admit that was a pretty positive message. That letter was pretty encouraging from the Lord. God tells the exiles that this is not a permanent situation. I will come to you in 70 to fulfill my uh, promise. And then he gives a very strong encouragement. And that's the verse that we're looking at. Verse 11 says, for I know the plans. 
Now, in the Hebrew, that's a double emphatic I. God says, I, I know the plans that I have. He's reminding them that the world operates on his timetable, on his schedule, and he's in complete knowledge and control of this plan. These false prophets don't know my plans. I know my plans. That's what God's saying. And these plans are for your peace, for your welfare, not evil. My goal is to give you a hope and a future, something to look forward to. And when this judgment is over and when this captivity ends, you will seek me with your whole heart and I will restore you and gather you and I will bring you back. So this is a message of great hope to exiles that even though I'm sending you away for 70 years into a foreign territory, I am not casting you aside, nor am I forgetting about you. I'm not punishing you just to hurt you. I'm bringing about a cleansing in you. Through this momentary discipline, you will one day call upon me in a way that you didn't back in Jerusalem. And this isn't all just happening randomly. Notice in the chapter how many times we've heard God say, I am, I. God is raising up Babylon. God is over the captivity. God is over the enemies of Israel. God is over the end of the captivity. God is over the restoration into the new land. The whole thing is planned and done by him. And that's why he says, I know the plans. They're my plans. So I see God encouraging his people here that just because they were lied to about 70 years does not change his faithfulness. It doesn't change his plans for them. They are still the covenant people. They can still receive all the blessings of following him when they seek him with their whole heart. And so, let's get down to the verse, the million-dollar question. Is this verse true for us today? Can we use it? Well, there's some bad news and some good news to the answer that I'm going to give you. First of all, we need to recognize we are not the original audience. We are not Israelites who existed as exiles in Babylon. We have not been promised two years by a false prophet, had that yanked out from under us, and then Jeremiah written us a letter telling us, build houses, have children. We don't have a promise to be restored to the promised land literally in Israel in 70 years. That thus, the promise of 2911 is not technically for us. It's not technically for us. However, I think we still can squeeze some truthful application from this. Does God have a plan for all things? Does he? Yes, he does. Does God know the plans that he has for all things? How about even for your individual life? Does he know the plan for your life? He sure does. Now, here's where it gets a little harder. Does God's plan for us include welfare and peace and future and a hope? Yes, but let's talk about it. This is where we need to be clear. If you're a Christian, you need to know. Because, see, you got to be careful what you say to everybody versus what you say to blood-bought Christians. Got to be careful. You can't just say things to everybody that don't apply to everybody. Okay? So this is one of those times. If you are a Christian... You have a very different set of promises that you can claim in your life than does a non-Christian. To the Christian, God says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now, that sounds like a future and a hope, doesn't it? God does work things together for good. For who? For those who love God and are called. That's who God works things together for. Christians get that promise uniquely. God works things out for Christians in a way that he does not work things out for non-Christians. So, does that mean if I turn to Christ today and I wasn't before, that I all of a sudden get a better life? Does it mean you get good things all the time and no evil ever happens? Well, let's talk about it. What it does mean is this. Like the exiles who had to endure 70 years before they get back to the promised land, we also must endure life as a sojourner on this earth. We have to endure pain and sickness and death. We have to endure mourning and grieving and cancer and heart attacks and COVID and war and famine. We Christians are not promised an exemption from hardship and suffering. In fact, Jesus promises suffering and that we will be hated for following him. So, we are not promised a perfect, pain-free life full of cash and health. But we are promised that all things will ultimately work together for good. We are promised that through the pain of our lives that God will be glorified us and that good will somehow in his timing and in his way, good will arise out of our pain. We are promised that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are promised that if we believe by faith in Christ Jesus, that he will call him to himself in death and that we will be with him forever in eternity. Though the promise that God made to the exiles is not exactly made to us today. It is a similar truth that through exile and through suffering, God will one day return to us and work all things out for our good and his glory. This is the message even of Jesus, that before the glory of resurrection and return, there must first be the pain of the old rugged cross. Before re return, restoration to the land, there must be a time of exile. Before an eternity in heaven, there must be a time of testing here on the earth as aliens and sojourners in a foreign land. Clickbait Christianity overpromises and underdelivers. It says, there's no suffering in the Christian life. There's no pain. And if there's pain, you're doing it wrong. You need to be about the power of positive thinking. There's no exile. Peace in our time. Just follow Jesus and all your troubles will go away. But God says, I know the plans. I know the plans that I have for you. And Jesus says, in this life, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. The non-clickbait plan of God is that we cling to Jesus by faith in this life through many dangers, toils, and snares, and one day in his plan and in his time, he will return to make all things new. But until then, we build houses, we plant gardens, we have children, we pray and seek the welfare of the city. 
We make disciples of Jesus so that when he returns, he finds faith on the earth. And through it all, we trust that he is working together all things for our good. Pray with me.